Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am awesome. How's that cat butt in your face treat? I was just about to say, I'm doing okay because I have a cat butt in my face, which is a fairly regular occurrence on this podcast. Yeah, that's that's a true fact. It's a shame <laughs> people can't see it. This um, is Pidge Word, everyone. If you can hear slight scratching and sound, it's because he's rubbing against my computer as we speak. Right on. <laughs> well, I won't bother to do the what have you been up to things because... We have a very special guest. Not that all of our guests aren't special, but we don't often have BFFs on here with us. And so I want to introduce to the Sausage of Science, Carolyn Joss Robinson. Hello, Carolyn. You mean Hello. Dr. Carolyn. Dr. Carolyn. Drop this. No, that's yeah. true. You're, you're right. Thank you guys for having me. It's super awesome to be here with some BFFs. Talking Thank about you so much for coming on. So everyone knows we have had a really hard time financed to Carolyn on the show because her life is both amazing and horrifying and like constantly busy and fascinating. I think so, that is a really good description of my life. Amazing and horrifying at the same time. Yeah. Oh, you we were wondering if you might, well, one, let's maybe start with your origin story, how you got into anthropology, what it is you do and why you stick with it. That's a great question. And I love that question because I just gave a public lecture on that question. So I'm incredibly prepared for this answer. Like many people found anthropology by accident. On paper, I'm considered a biological anthropologist, but I would just consider myself an anthropologist. I don't feel comfortable inside any of the boxes, right? Mm -hmm. But I started my career as a student studying molecular and cellular biology mm -hmm. and had dreams of only being a mad scientist, nothing but a mad scientist, in a dark lab with no windows, with beakers and all the spooky steam and saving the world one you know, solution at a time. Is this in college after your eminent soccer stardom? Because yes. you were a child prodigy soccer star yes. before this, right? After my eminent soccer stardom, which was like, you know, coincided with my dreams of being a mad scientist. Back then I had really great mad scientist hair that was like swoopy and straight <laughs> up and it was perfect. And then, you know, I took an anthropology, physical biological anthropology class as a, an elective and was like, oh my God, this is really cool. And then I wanted to design my own major where I could do everything I wanted. And the powers that be were like, you don't just get to design your own department and then live in your own department by yourself. And so I was like, well, that's a bummer. And I added anthropology as a major as an undergraduate and then ecology and evolutionary biology. So I switched from the molecular and went up to the organismal level. Where were you? At the University of Colorado in Boulder. So I created my own space and thrived within it. Decided to go to graduate school for a master's at Purdue University. And I decided to that I was going to be a primatologist of some sort. And I sort of went on this path that took me into a number of different places that I always tell students that get comfortable in the in-between spaces and don't stay on the lines, right? So I, you know, in the beginning, I wanted to only study non-human primates and then very quickly realized that you couldn't study non-human primates without studying those human primates and sort of got into this realm of ethnoprimatology and conservation biology and cultural anthropology and sort of in working in all these spaces, I also ended up 
having to wear hats as a conservationist and an applied anthropologist and an activist in all sorts of spaces that I wasn't necessarily preparing for when I went to the forest for the first time to look for a monkey by myself. Hmm. My master's work was in Central America and Costa Rica. And then I ended up in the Congo Basin studying small forest ungulates, primarily looking at the relationships between human and wildlife interactions. And sort of just took all these different trajectories, came into one. And I never wanted to be in one box. I always wanted to exist in the interstitial spaces, right? In the liminal, betwixt and between. I never wanted to be in one category of anthropology. And my committee was not super impressed with that because they're like, you got to pick something and do something. And I did request that they just take a leap of faith and let me go and do it and that I would produce something. And I'm very fortunate that those five individuals took that leap of faith and let me go and do it. I floundered a bit, but I think I was also successful in craft a research program that took all the in-between spaces and made them a cohesive story. So, you know, I circulated three of your articles among us and will admit that one I read two years ago, one I read about a month ago. One I still haven't read, and then I remembered that you were on the cover of AJHB, or your research was in 2016, and we were trying to find copies for each other to frame and put on our wall. And as memory serves, it all involves that human, non-human primate interaction and bushmeat and disease transmission. So can you tell us what you're up to in that regard? As someone who was trained traditionally as a primatologist and an ecology background, I never thought that my work would be on the cover of the American Journal of Human Biology. (laughs) And so for me, that's really important because there's a holistic story to tell when you're talking about humans, non-human primates, non-primate organisms, you know, forest encounters and sort of the way that people thrive in these spaces. And so what I found in my PhD work essentially was that wildlife was declining where I work, which is in the Zangasanga protected areas in the Central African Republic. And that wildlife populations, particularly prey populations that people needed to eat to survive, uh, right? So for subsistence and even small scale commercial sales of, of bush meat or wild animal meat. They're primarily hunting ungulates, which, right, the hoofed creatures called dikers, which are sort of range from a, the cat that we've, I've seen the butt of several times. Um, <laughs> a Great Dane, right? There's a huge range of size. And in Zanga Sanga, there's um, six to seven species, depending on how you classify them. And those were the primary food source, followed by the different species of monkeys that are present in the forest, right, would be a secondary prey item. And so as I tracked these animals through the forest and realized that there were far fewer of them than I'd ever anticipated based on the the stories I'd heard people tell me about the forest of Zanga Sanga just dripping with wildlife, you know, and I was there for three months before I saw a a living creature in the Mm. forest. Mm. I was really struck by this you know, empty forest syndrome that they talk about and thinking, wow, you know, if this is how you know, animal populations and wildlife populations are faring in this forest, what's happening to the human bodies that rely upon these for cultural, material, and economic sustenance? And so as a postdoc, my former PhD advisor, current close colleague and collaborator, Melissa Remus, and I decided to look at what was happening to the humans who were relying on these wildlife. That if wildlife was declining and what was hitting the cooking pot was so much smaller than we anticipated, how was this being written on their bodies? And 
uh, we started looking at primarily anthropometric and biomarkers amongst Central African foraging communities, uh, the Bayaka in the Central African Republic, and looking at the ways access to forest resources in what we would call a transitional economy within a conservation landscape, right, so there's all these levels, was affecting their body. So you have a protected areas landscape or complex that limits resource access to individuals with declining wildlife populations. So what food was coming into the household? Where was it coming from? Was it coming from the forest, from a market? Essentially, how are they faring in this space, right? Because in the, in the broader communities, right, outside the forest, there was also sort of evidence of economic distress and expensive food resources and that there had to be something happening there. And what we found was indeed that certain subsets of the Bayaka community were really struggling nutritionally in this context, right? And it's not just about access to resources, it's also about how access to resources plays out at where you are in the life course, particularly thinking about Aka, which have a cooperative child-rearing system that I know you had Courtney Mann on the show, right? And that's one of her specialties, that looking at how women bear these burdens in these transitional economies in different ways. So in the Zanga-Sanga area, it's really remarkable because that transition to a full market economy that's reliant upon agriculture is fairly recent, if not still happening. So you have a group of foragers that are still relying heavily on forest resources and not being fully integrated into a cash-driven market economy. So how were they living in this interstitial space, accessing food, accessing cash? And we found that the greatest burden was carried by these older women over the age of 40 that were still not quite in their post-reproductive years, but responsible for taking care of their own children, their grandchildren many cases, their great-great-grandchildren, while also foraging, working in a farm, putting in a very, very long hours with very little return, you know, and it took us a long time to figure out a way to translate our skill set as primatologists to a journal of human biology. So for us, I think that was a particular feat of success to say we acknowledge this problem and we found a way to engage it and to try to bring it to the audience that we want to hear it so that they can help us to better understand it. And we did it, right? And then you got a lot of feedback on it that was positive and sort of we're continuing to engage in these questions. And now within our research team, got new students, a new student at Purdue University that's expanding this study out to the agricultural communities, Elizabeth Hall at Purdue. And looking also at, as communities more broadly in the region engage with wildlife, what risk does that put them for zoonotic disease transmission and other sort of factors? So we're trying to broaden it out. The take home for it is, as a team, we're interested in science and the science for science sake and what's happening to these bodies. But it actually grew out of a space where we wanted to try to find a way to reconnect people to conservation. And we thought the best way to bring them back to conservation was to show them how conservation is written in their skin. Well, speaking of reconnecting with people, I know you've developed some serious and meaningful relationships there. You have several namesakes. (laughs) I do, indeed. Actually, I just found this picture in my lab. Everyone else can't see it, but I'll show it to you guys. Of Kete Carolyn. Aw. After she was just born. Yes, a dear, dear friend of mine. It was probably the first woman I met there. I had no language ability. 
And she was always just hanging out with me at my house. She was very pregnant. We developed a sort of friendship over time. When her baby was born, she named uh, Kete Carolyn after me. As much as we've developed an incredible friendship from that, I now look back and admire the strategic nature of that. (laughs) (laughs) And we joke about it now in terms of our, right, how that creates a kinship system between this and certain allegiances and alliances that we must maintain as her being the smaller version of me and me being the larger version of her. And there have been several other Carolines that have come along the way since then in Cameroon and in the Central African Republic. And it always, you know, people laugh about it when they hear it. But to me, it's, it's much, it's an honor. I also, it's not just an honor to have someone name their little girl after me. I appreciate the fact that they respect me enough to enter into that social contract of what it means to be a namesake. I mean, that is ingenious. And what is going on there? What is the cultural practice that you're being included in? You know, it's something I was just talking to somebody else about this that I've learned. And here I am now oftentimes considered right a hunter-gatherer scholar, even though I started studying howler monkeys and that I'm constantly amazed at how much I learn about forager worldview as I'm operating within it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some researchers have commented on this, and it's really true that in a lot of foraging cultures, knowledge isn't a commodity that's traded. It's something that you earn. So you, you can't necessarily just ask a question and get an answer. You put in the time spent and the blood, sweat, and tears together of sharing these different types of knowledge. And so from what I've gathered over the years with my particular namesake, Kete Carolyn, is that sort of as her, the bigger version of her, I'm obliged to buy my mother certain gifts for Mother's Day and that as resources come into me, I should be distributing them out to my kin network in a number of different ways, right? Whether it's social, economic, it's rarely ever cash. It's more sort of spreading what resources I have that come in out and then sort of those resources come back to me Mm -hmm. in the Central African context. And it's been really great to watch her grow up over the last 10 years. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, to develop that long term of a relationship is impressive. And that's so good to hear. And I think it's what we all need to be doing in our sites and that long term so you can see the culture and be a part of it as much as possible. But that's a positive story that you've had from Fieldwork. Would you mind sharing some of the more recent kind of icky negative stories? Oh, well. The more graphic you can be, because I've heard some of these things. Fieldwork is exhilarating, amazing, and horrific. And I I also really relish in the fact that I can share those amazing stories with the communities I work with, as well as sharing all the horrific experiences. And there's something about being at some of the lowest points of your life and your most vulnerable with people that have been there before and are happy to be there with you and to pick you back up. And so my interviewers here will have heard this story, but I was fairly lucky for most of my career in terms of avoiding multiple illnesses at once. I mean, there's always the dysentery and the mosquito bites and the weird infected cuts and abscesses that come with living in a forest for multiple months at a time. And I would have thought I would have had more of these experiences when I actually lived in the forest during my PhD work. But it seems like since then, maybe it's because I'm older, my body has just given up, that now they are coming more and more frequent. So I do recall after I run a field school in Southwest Cameroon, it's currently not running at the moment given the political situation in the country. But I just run the field school by myself for the first time. 
put all but two of the students on the airplane. And I remember sitting on a couch with one of the students and asking her if she'd been bitten by a lot of bugs. No. Okay, fine. Must be me. But over the next few days, said bites progressed into itchier and more angry spots on my body. 18 of them to be exact mm. on my right flank. And then I <laughs> began a four to five day journey overland from the west coast of Cameroon on the Atlantic Ocean to Zanga Sanga in the Central African Republic. Made it to the capital in Yaoundé, still not really sure what was happening. Did complain to my good friend a couple of times that my leg was really itchy and painful, but just moved on. And as we began the two and a half day car ride where, you know, what took was supposed to take one hour was taking seven hours. And mm -hmm. I was sitting mostly on my left butt cheek and not anywhere else on this horrible, bumpy, awful road. And just thinking something really wrong is happening with my leg. And not really, I was traveling with a colleague uh, who's a parasitologist as luck would have it. <laughs> and another good friend who runs a tourist lodge in Zanga Sanga. And when we arrived at the river crossing, right, to make the crossing from Cameroon to the Central African Republic, I finally broke down and asked my colleague to come down and, and look at my butt, right? And there's nothing that really cements collegial relationships by breaking down. You know, we've been working together for a few years. This is our first time in the field together and being like, could you please come down here and take a look at what's happening on my leg? It's really bad. Only to find that I had 18 tumbu larvae in my leg, which is essentially a sort of smaller version of a bot fly, no less horrifying, and that I, they weren't ready to come out yet, and we weren't in a very clean environment, so the next day I got to get in a boat and travel upriver for three hours, sitting again on the one side when my good friend woke up and was staring at me, and I was, you know, wondering if there was something on me, and he exclaimed that he was horrified that he could actually see the larvae moving through my pants. Ah. Right. And then I've got my parasitologist who's horrified, but also, yes, right? <laughs> <laughs> we arrive at the camp right, where we're staying at the lodge. And actually, the graduate student I just spoke of was there. Um, I was coming to visit her during her PhD work and to shoot an episode for HBO of Vice. And, uh, you know, the first thing I said to her is, how are you? There's 18 larvae in my butt. And she was like, okay. <laughs> That's like the most Carolyn thing I've ever heard. Uh, I know. Like, Hello, and I have 18 larvae in my butt. <laughs> like wonderfully another one of our very close female Bayaka friends heard that my heard my boat coming up the river and so she'd come to the lodge and of course immediately uh, we told her about my leg and she is laughing maniacally and saying it's finally happened it's finally happened and I was like what and she's like those are the small animals that infect dikers right God has finally turned you in to the animal that you spent your whole life studying <laughs> <laughs> uh, we then proceeded to extract them as they came of age, and mm. I parted with my larvae friends. So uh, why do you have to wait when you say come of age? Why do you have to wait to pull them out? You want to pop them out when they're at the right maturity level. You don't want to pop them you out. You don't want to hurt them when they're babies. You <laughs> want to let them grow and flourish. Nurture them, right? And feed upon you. He's their mother. I think the concern was that we wouldn't be able to get the whole larvae out and then I'd get an infection. Only half of one of them remained in my body for an extended period of time. How and long later, until you found out about it? It was later removed 
on Lake Geneva while we were paddle boarding. And I was like, what's that weird thing sticking out of my leg? And <laughs> As you will. And my brother was horrified and I was like, wow, well, that's a relief that it's out. And, I, and my husband's like, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> we'll just go back to paddle boarding. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Do it up. It's time to go. Now that's unrelated to the paper that's being written about your poop, correct? <laughs> yes. All around circulating around the same time. In that same trip, I became infected with quite a number of hookworms that were not discovered until six to seven, possibly more months later when I was having digestive issues and having a separate medical procedure when they realized I was full of hookworms, of which it's a genus where there are not a lot of adult species. So then for the sake of science, I collected all of the samples that I could to be sent to a laboratory to be stored into perpetuity. How long was the collection period? It was, I think I collected my samples for three to four days. It turns out I'm really good at collecting my own samples <laughs> and equipment. I don't want to Scientists often make the best participants in Wait, can you? How do you do this? Do you poop into a jar? What do you do here? Well, it's a good question, Dr. Lynn. So <laughs> I have a lot of nursing friends. So they got me a lot of those little, I don't like know. Like the bedpans. Yeah, they're like upside down top hats. I'm like yeah. putting a bedpan on my head, but nobody can see it. And then it goes into the toilet. That just struck me as infinitely too messy because that's just more things to put in biohazard bags and then to convince EH&S to come pick up my poo collection paraphernalia just wasn't something I wanted to address. So the short version for this wildly public podcast is that I'm really good at pooping into a mason jar. That was exactly what I imagined. That's multitasking. You know, and there's nothing like walking down the hall of your institution with a brown paper bag full of your own feces and just... In mason jars. Living, living the dream, the scientific dream, really. So a paper then is going to come out about you and your particular hookworms? Is that well, if they find reasonable samples of worms and they do end up publishing on them, I did discuss with my colleagues an arrangement where I could be an author as a provider of the samples. That's amazing. So we'll That's see. the one you want on your CV. Right. There's some question as to whether or not the Western medical interventions I had before destroyed a lot of the, sam destroyed a lot of the samples. Interesting. How long well, do you know when you'll get the results on it? They've analyzed some of them. Turns out I, <laughs> I produced a, quite a lot of specimens that had to be mailed to many different institutions before they could be mailed internationally. We've noted um, you're very prolific, so. <laughs> yes, thank you. I think it was really my husband was happy that they were no longer just on his workbench, which is where they had been stored. The first few sets of samples turned up nothing, right? So we're really thinking that there's possibly some issue, right, with sort of the medical procedures that I had had, but we do have video and photographic evidence of their existence, <laughs> where there's the pictures that I have of them that are just labeled worm, worm. Like, it, like any good scientist, doc fully documented. Yeah, just, just cover all of the bases. Okay. When the UPS is going to say, I don't think I'm interested in these unmarked poo samples. Yeah. So now that's out there, world. You're welcome. So. <laughs> I just want to interject here, positive and negative, but you're in Wilmington, so your poo samples and you were safe from the 100-year storm that you guys just yes. suffered, yes, so yes. everything's good there? Yeah, the poo samples went out before 
Hurricane Florence and I evacuated the rest of the science and blood samples to Georgia. Good. And you're fine? Cats are good? The cats are never good, but that's oh. unrelated to hurricanes. They're insane in general. But yes, we're good. We're, we're Wilmington is rebuilding. The campus communities really come together. It's a stressful time, but we're doing it. How have students adjusted? Because you guys were off of school for, what, three weeks? About four weeks. Four weeks. Okay. I mean, what has that adjustment been like? It's been difficult. And, you know, we still, when school opened, there were still a few hundred displaced students that were living out of hotels or friends' houses. And so it's been a real challenge to figure out how to recoup that lost time while also remembering that students just don't have my class. They have four to five other classes that could be lab classes, that could be writing intensive courses, that could be capstones or practicums. And you know, I think the faculty have tried really hard to keep that in mind. It can be difficult as an academic, you know, research-oriented people to sort of break from those guidelines that we set ourselves and say, it's okay to do a little bit less in this situation, right? We always want to be a 12 on a 10 scale or a 15 or a 100 on a 10 scale. But for our sake and our students' sake, we have to hit all the markers we can yeah. in a way that's meaningful for the students, but not more than they can handle at this moment. Mm-hmm. And it varies from course to course. I mean, I'm teaching intro-level bioanthropology classes. So for me at the moment, you know, we're talking about adaptation and sort of how we can respond to environmental stressors before this in natural selection, right? And here's an example of a time when we can sort of take our unique ability as humans to adapt to changing environments and do the very best we can. So on the other hand, you just got tenure. Well, official in February, but yes, the first (laughs) Congrats. Which is why I can now come on a podcast and talk about my poop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> nobody can fire you for putting that out there. Not that you would be anyway. You're extremely prolific and congratulations. You are Thank more you. than worthy. We're really pleased and proud and all the things that friends and colleagues do and are. Yeah. There were many shouts and whoops through our uh, group text message. It was quite exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great. It's what, it, at the same time, we all remember writing the PhD and being like, wait, is that it? Is there more? <laughs> great. Um, and it was really great. And it's nice to sort of try to give myself the space to sort of, to think about that. And for me, I think a lot about all the pieces that got me here and the communities that got me here, right? And the fact that I have tenure is built off the blood and sweat and tears and friendships of many people, right? Across all of my homes here, Central Africa, Cameroon. and so. I do also look forward in sharing that with them. So speaking of which, I remember over you and Grant making us some beef wellington spring break a few years ago, you telling me the story of switching your field sites and some of the political instability that's influenced your work, but as you say, built on the backs of them and and what they've gone through. So can you tell us a little bit about that context? Yeah, it's really challenging, right? Because I was, I first started my job right at a tenure track institution working in the Central African Republic, you know, and there I was finally with the money to go back and do another full round of study that I hadn't been able to do in years. And the coup d'etat happened in the Central African Republic. Uh, There was a mass poaching event at our field site in Zanga Sanga. And it was a no-go zone. And there, a lot of it was that my colleagues and I there on the ground had worked so hard to create this possibility for us to come back and do another set of forest work. So there's a lot of wind taken out of everybody's sails, not just my own. And then being on the sidelines, watching your communities go through this sort of devastation, 
which started more in the northern parts of the Central African Republic and slowly crept down. I was fortunate at that time to have the opportunity to move to Southwest Cameroon to work and have found a great set of colleagues there, really great community collaborations and community NGOs that I'm working with there. And unfortunately, over the last few years, as the civil upset in the Central African Republic has returned to more or less a state of somewhat normalcy, Cameroon is now in the midst of a horrific, highly unpublicized civil upset where there's a long post-colonial legacy there that's coming to bear um, in really insidious and dark ways. And it'll get worse before it gets better. And so now again, in this moment, I'm unable to contact colleagues and and sort of find out what's happening in the communities that I've worked with that have been largely raised to the grounds and people are, uh, have fled to the forest. So there'll be a, a huge rebuilding process with the communities in terms of necessarily even from the research side, just in general, right, of what it's going to look like as the Anglophone parts of Cameroon try to rebuild themselves, hopefully, in the future. You know, and so I've sort of been back and forth in between these two places that have been broiled and really difficult conflicts that are part of this post-colonial legacy. And again, right, that's a space I never imagined myself being in and having to uh, interrogate and understand what it means to not only work in these spaces, but understand where they come from, and also trying to find ways as a scientist and colleague to use the voice I have to tell stories and to be a platform for these individuals. I was fortunate, right? We're back working in the Central African Republic now, and I was able to visit as a private entity in 2015 when the war was just coming to a close. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me of what happens in these spaces and how hugely they can be changed by different things, political, economic, and what happens to a community of people that largely sort of can't share the trust they shared before. Mm which is difficult, right? And then trying to reinvigorate your research work and things like that in the wake of some of those conflicts becomes really challenging of knowing, you know, when do we move forward in some of these more scientific endeavors that have certainly applied outcomes. And for me personally, now that I'm in the space where I have tenure, I would be focusing even before that science for science sake is amazing and wonderful but really it's nothing if I don't support the communities that have supported me. Mm. Is that related to the, you mentioned the HBO Vice thing you did a few years ago. Is that out? Yeah, it came out last October. It's on the microbiome actually. <laughs> um, we should have a link to that maybe with our show notes. I have several colleagues that are doing a lot of work on microbiomes more broadly of hunter-gatherer agricultural industrialized communities, as well as looking at some of the habituated ape populations. Um, there's several groups of habituated Western lowland gorillas in the Zanga Sanga protected areas. And I came onto that project with my colleague, Melissa Remus, as a hunter-gatherer scholar and expert in Bayaka in the region. Um, not necessarily just for our knowledge of the people, but I'm really fortunate to work with a team of scientists that are all about making sure that the communities they work with are advocated for from the conception of the idea all the way through the publication and what happens afterwards. That they create a system of checks and balances to say, it's very easy for us to get wrapped up into what we can take from these data and these samples and what we can learn from microbiomes, but we never want to lose sight of the fact that these come from human bodies, mm. and the stories that those bodies are telling. Fantastic. So you have two articles in early view with International Journal of Primatology. 
Yeah, so we have the one that's on Preuss's Red Colobus. That's by a colleague of mine, Alexander Hoffner, who's a PhD student at the University of Georgia. Some work that we did in one of the northern villages in Corp National Park and looking at ethnoprimatological understandings and engagements with the way people understand Preuss's Red Colobus in the area from an ecological ethnographic standpoint. Preuss's Red Colobus is interesting because Corp National Park largely exists because Somebody came and saw Preuss's red colobus and they built a park. Along with a lot of other biodiversity that's endemic, Preuss's red colobus was one of the key drivers in that. And I was always interested in thinking about what was the awareness of communities of this particular species and and shaping the boundaries that were put around them. Because in Cora, people still live inside the park. They operate in a three to five kilometer band around their village. And it's sort of what does it mean to be an enclaved person where the idea was to protect the biodiversity and support human communities, but you've largely lost a lot of your rights by living within that park. Is this in any way related to Pat Wright's work in Ranamafana? Is that a model or are they similar types of approaches to protecting these species that are newly, I guess, newly identified or... No, I mean, CORUP was established in the late 80s. You know, it was one of the first integrated conservation and development park to envision a future for humans and wildlife. So the opposite. Yeah. Most times, right, you have people are resettled outside parks, and that was very clear from the get-go that that wouldn't work in CORUP, although one village was resettled outside the park. And sort of looking at the way that communities engage with conservation and these endangered species, as well as the species that they rely on for survival, Mm. um, and what what that means and what that looks like. And she had some really interesting results that were related to linguistics and the way that researchers interpret what people are saying. That sort of, I think, is a really important component of why qualitative ethnographic data is is critical to the most quantitative efforts we do in conservation. And then the other IJP article is a much more theoretical piece on the importance of holistic approaches to primatology and sort of calling for uh, a reshaping of the way we consider data, which I think is important more broadly in science. And I wrote that with my colleague, Melissa Remus at Purdue, trying to remind ourselves to move beyond our hypotheses and that while we need our hypotheses and we need our data that there's so much fuzziness around those data that's just as critical to that data's existence and try to just not be limited by our questions and our hypotheses and embrace the other stuff the data that's not data from what our advisors always say oh well that's is that data of course it's data Right. And we were pointing to frameworks that already exist, right, in Japanese primatology and different geographies of knowledge production. The tools are out there. It's just getting our students and our colleagues to reconnect with how if we think how knowledge is produced in different ways, not just through data and hypotheses, we might be able to learn more about our study species, ourselves, and the interconnections between those two. Wow. That's awesome stuff. I love that. You can see how I like to exist all over the map. <laughs> and I then I, I only want to live in between all of those spaces. No, that, that's amazing. And, and that's the really hard thing to do. And you're doing it and you're doing it well. It's super impressive. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It is hard. And I think I always try to tell students who don't know where they fit, right, mm-hmm. as undergraduates or graduate students. That's great in many ways, you're going to be open to new possibilities and new types of questions. Of course, you have to fit somewhere. You have to apply for grants and you have to get the support of your your faculty and your colleagues. But 
embrace those liminal spaces, right? In many ways, that's where a lot of the most interesting stuff can come from. Thank you, Carolyn. How can folks find out more about your work and coming <laughs> to do all the amazing things you do with you? If you're oh, I wish I could tell you I had like a Twitter handle and a website. You do, but I can't find it. I've used, used it to. once and you <laughs> I said, I don't think this is going to work. And you said, doesn't look like it's working. And that was the end of my Twitter history. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so I'm terrible. Just look for me, Carolyn Just Robinson on Google. Email me. I should be more visible in this world, but I'm not. But maybe that's part of my whole liminal existence, right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you're, I'm you're, owning it. you're not staying on the lines. I'm not at all. Well, I've been Chris for the Sausage of Science. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. And I'm Karen. You can find me at Kara Akabak. The Human Biology Association thanks you, and we'll talk to you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.